standing as we honor the reading of God's word this morning. This is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim the gospel of God. You are witnesses. And God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Welcome all. It is good to see you today. Welcome to you who are joining us online and to all those up in the family room. We, we pray all is well with you. Uh, my name is Heath. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it's, it's good to see you. Uh, if we haven't had the chance to meet, um, I would love that opportunity. So maybe we can meet after service and uh, get to know one another a little bit. Now we are in our third week in a new sermon series here on First Thessalonians called As in Heaven. And I admit that there was a lot in that passage we just read. And we can't look into all of it this morning. But there is a center of gravity to the text that holds all of its pieces together, something that animates it, something that interweaves it. And if we can see that, well, then that will make all the difference. And that center of gravity is union with Jesus. See, Paul lives his life conscious of his union with Christ. And this is the source of his boldness, it's the source of his humility, it's the source of his dependence, and it's the source of his, his delight. So let's see all of that shine out of the text. Now, recall our backstory. Having been rejected, bloodied, and beaten, and run out of town, from the town of Philippi, under the cover of darkness, Paul, Silas, and Timothy now continue on in their mission knowing full well that they're going to receive similar treatment from the various other towns that they're going to. So their mission is not a comfortable one. Their mission is not an easy one, nor is it a safe one. 
It's a good one. It's a beautiful one. It's a true one. So having faced considerable resistance and affliction, literally crushing pressure like we talked about last week, Paul and company continue on in boldness, with love, with tenderness, with labor, and with toil. They haven't been deterred. They're not given up. They are faithful witnesses to King Jesus. Now it makes you wonder, where does one get this kind of grit, this resolve, this tenacity? How does this come about? What internal nuclear fusion fuels it? Well, today, Paul will help us see it as he shares it with the Thessalonians. So what lies at the heart of faithful witness? We're going to get a glimpse into that today. We're going to look at some of the motivations of faithful witness, um, some methods of faithful witness, and then ultimately um, talk again about the message of faithful witness. So what lies at the heart of faithful witness? Well, this term, faithful witness, refers to one of our seven practices of apprenticeship that, that we see all throughout Scripture. And here's what the term means. Faithful witness is the practice of proclaiming Jesus in everything you say and do, word and deed. It's the practice of proclaiming Jesus in everything you say and do, in word and deed. And we're going to see this practice on glowing display today here in our passage we're also going to see a few other of our apprenticeship practices um, within this passage, so take note of those as, as you see them. Now, recall how Paul, he's writing to the church in Thessalonica, the church family, the people of God in Thessalonica, which is current, current day is called Thessaloniki, which is the second largest city in Greece, just so you can get your geographical bearing. So Paul planted a church preached the good news of King Jesus in Philippi, and then moved on to Thessalonica. There you can see on the map the location between Philippi and Thessalonica. It's about 96 miles um, as you go through the main artery there, um, the, the main highway there, the Via Ignatia. So about 96 miles apart from each other. Paul planted a church, was run out of town, and now he is in Thessalonica with Silas and Timothy, um, his, his ministry associates. So now today, Paul continues on in this heartfelt letter of the Thessalonians here, and he reminds them of the story of resistance that they experienced there in Philippi. So with that said, let's look at our verses very closely and work our way through. There's a beautiful logic to this whole flow, and sometimes we can forget the logic because we just pick out little verses, and I wonder what that means, I wonder what that means. But we're going we're to string them together and watch the flow and see the logic um, that is, is inherent within it. So, verse 1 and 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Okay, so in spite of troubles and suffering, Paul came to Thessalonica in boldness, declaring the gospel of God, the kingdom come, and the person and work of Jesus Christ, that Jesus was king, that Caesar was not king. And the arrival and subsequent ministry was not in vain, it was fruitful, it was, it was effective. And the key to this boldness, the key to the fruitfulness of the ministry is set out here before us. In fact, it's the key to all that follows in the passage that we read. 
It's actually the glowing center of Paul's theology. There in verse 2, he says, We have boldness in our God. We have boldness in our God. Paul's a little bit obsessed with this thing, uh, this phrase of being in Christ, in our God. He uses the phrase over 160 times in his letters. So Paul is letting the Thessalonians and us know that the key to everything is this union with Jesus. Earlier in 1 Thessalonians here, chapter 1, um, he talks to them and he calls them the church in God the Father and in Jesus Christ. So what, what is this in God stuff and Christ stuff? Well, it's what's called union with Christ. It's the very center of the Christian faith, actually. Because of the work of this Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and you know, he now sits on the throne of the cosmos. He has given us his spirit. He dwells with us. We are united to him. We are deeply, profoundly, and truly united to Jesus. What is his is now ours. What is ours is his. His righteousness has become our righteousness. He has taken upon himself our sins. We've been crucified with him. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me, Paul says in Galatians. It's all the same kind of thing. We're united to Jesus. Like a, like a man and a woman who are married, now they share in those finances and, and all of the emotional ups and downs, and, and their whole life is now shared and it's together. We are united with Jesus. And if you recall, in our last sermon series, uh, which we were digging deeply into this idea of apprenticeship with Jesus, uh, we laid out a paradigm of apprenticeship. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What is this way of apprenticeship? And the paradigm was four words. Union. Abiding and obeying and imaging. We are united to Jesus, united to the Master. He gives us His Spirit. He empowers us now then to abide with Him, to be with Him, to obey Him, to behold Him, and therefore then to become like Him, to image Him. Union, abiding and obeying and imaging. And so all of Paul's abiding and obeying and his imaging is all rooted in the fact that he is united with Jesus. And he is very conscious of that union. He's living out of that daily thinking on it. And his acts flow from that reality, his identity, who he is now in Christ. So the Christian life begins with union to Jesus, being made alive, being born anew, being made a new creature, new creation. To be a Christian doesn't mean you adopt some philosophy. It is a change in nature, a change in identity, a new heart, and a new way of inhabiting this world. And so living in light of that transformation is at the heart of faithful witness. So let's see how this plays out. So here's the beautiful logic of it all. So though they suffered, right, we know they suffered, they will suffer more you know, as they preach the good news as they continue to go throughout uh, Asia Minor and Greece and Macedonia. But they do so in boldness. How do they do this in boldness and in love, given the resistance? Is it because they're suckers for punishment? Is it because they're uh, overconfident, unreasonable, naive? 
No, it's because they have been commissioned and approved by God. So pick up a verse 3. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So here, he, he kind of opens his chest that shows the motive behind what they're doing. It's because of the gospel, because they are in Christ. Because they're in Christ, they have been approved by God. They've been approved not because they are smarter, not because they are somehow better, not because they are better looking or better communicators, not because they worked harder, but because of Jesus. It's because they are in Jesus that they are approved. See, they had trusted in the gospel, trusted in the work of Jesus, and they knew they were united to him, and that changed everything. It was no longer they who lived, but it was Christ who lived within them. Now, this isn't to say that Paul didn't have a special commission as an apostle. Of course, he surely did. He was called in a very special and unique way, so I want to make that incredibly clear. But every Christian, every one of us here today, finds the approval that our heart needs and aches for in Jesus Christ. And so Paul, in Colossians, another book in the New Testament, he says this, Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 4. He says, the Father, God the Father has qualified you, has approved you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In Jesus we are approved. That's what he's saying. God has approved us because of the work of Jesus who's transferred us from death and darkness into light and life. We are fundamentally different because the Spirit dwells within us. And Paul's conscious of this acceptance and approval by God. He's conscious of his union with Jesus, and so he acts in accordance with it, and it makes all the difference. His union with Christ affects his daily actions. So because he is approved by God... in the face of affliction because he knows the truth. He can be free from the bondage of pleasing people and it is a bondage to live in a way where you have to please people. People pleasing is a form of bondage. If any of you are prone to it, and we all are prone to it in some way, shape, or form, you know how exhausting it is. Isn't it? It's exhausting. It's draining trying to get the approval of everybody. The problem is there's a million different opinions, and people are fickle, and those opinions keep changing. And so we are battered back and forth by the, the trend winds of this world and the, the opinions that move up and down. And we keep trying to seek for approval and seek to be accepted, and it just eviscerates our soul. And it has us do all sorts of things that we know aren't right. But in the moment, we do in order to curry some kind of favor with whoever the audience happens to be in that moment. We're, we're approval junkies. We're approval junkies. We are validation addicts. We, we, we crave validation. We fear rejection from 
age, we want to be included when there's a circle of kids playing on the playground and we're feeling out. Something feels wrong about that situation. And we want, we want to be in the middle, to middle school, to high school, to, to the office. When there's the group over there talking and you know you weren't invited in, right? We, we desire validation and approval. The human heart is wired to revel in being approved. The human heart is, is wired to delight in validation. Why? It's because we're made in the image of God. And we are made to live in harmony and union with him, to be like Christ, and to have the, the smile of his delight as the banner over our lives. To know that we are loved and accepted, even though we're fully known. That is what we are made for, is, is to sit in the warmth of his delight, showing the glory of Christ, because his spirit is within us. We are wired to revel in approval. Social media is completely wired and designed. It's very architecture. It feeds off this. The invention of the like button is just a, a, new, a new way of tapping into the ancient truth of us wanting to be seen, known, and loved. The glowing little heart on Instagram and Twitter, the, the thumbs up on Facebook. I mean, it's all wired so that we check and, and, and if we don't get enough like clicks, somehow we don't feel worthy. Somehow we feel something is off, and so we present a better face, we present a better life, we, we show how, how good we're doing, right? We show that we're living the good life that people might approve of us, or we, we say smart things or put up pretty pictures so that we might be approved. We are wired for this. So here at the very heart, the, the motivational heart of faithful witness is knowing one is approved of by God, because that's where the security will come from, is knowing that we're approved of by God, not, not by people. That's, that's going to be fickle, that's going to be fading, that's going to that's going to leave us. So one is free to seek the delight of God. One is free to speak the truth if they know approval comes from God. And this means we can be bold. We can speak the truth in love. We don't always have to do a quick calculation of who thinks what and try to figure out the best way forward to appease them and them and them and them. But we can actually speak the truth in love because what we know is that first and foremost, we seek to please God. And so we don't have to do shady things and manipulate. Now, continue to watch how, how Paul's beautiful logic rolls out here. So let's pick up the verse 5. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But Paul's not disrespecting them. He's not saying, I don't care what you think. He loves them. In fact, he loves them so much that he wasn't going to come with manipulating words. But he didn't have to use the oily words and the artificial smiles that we so often see and, and televangelists or, or in 
because he knew that the transformation of the heart was God's jurisdiction. He knew that if he loved well and preached the gospel, God would do what God does and he would bear fruit. So it wasn't up to Paul to make everything work out. He was an ambassador. He was a minister. He himself wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't the Savior. So he could be free to do what he was called to do and not worry that it wasn't all going to work out and try to hold it all together as though he was the one who integrated the universe, right? Paul didn't have to flatter to manipulate others by massaging their egos to curry favor in order to get the funding that he needed because he knew where his funding came from. He knew where his resources came from. It doesn't mean that he didn't ask for offerings to care for the people in Jerusalem, but he didn't have to flatter. He didn't have to say half-truths or untruths in order to get money. So he didn't come with this pretext of greed, like he said. He didn't have to be self-focused and constantly worried. Am I looking good? Am I sounding good? Because the whole point wasn't whether they thought Paul looked good or sounded good. The whole point wasn't the glory, glory in Paul. The whole point was the glory in Christ. He knew he was intensely conscious of whose he was. Paul was intensely conscious of whose he was. He knew he was known, loved, and accepted. I love how our student ministry here talks about this all the time. You are known, loved, and accepted in Christ. He knew he was united to Jesus. He knew the warmth of the Father's love for his Son is now washed over him as a recipient of grace. He knew the life of abundance that came in following Jesus. He knew that all of Christ's riches were his. In other words, he was deeply secure. If you're looking for any ground of security other than Christ, it will move beneath you and shake and drop you at some point. Our true security is found in Him. Don't, and don't you admire people who are secure? Like I do, because I, I wrestle with the whole host, a riot of insecurities. And when I see somebody who is living in a way where it's like, the last thing they're thinking about is themselves and thinking about other people and they're just living and being and doing and enjoying and speaking truth and it's magnetic. That kind of security is found only in Jesus. So, next, Paul goes on to show how this motivation worked out in his methods. How his motivation worked out in his methods, how it was in flesh, embodied in what he did. So, verse 7 But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. A beautiful image. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and we charged you. Okay, so, gets all the logic. Not having to prove themselves. 
not having to work for their salvation, not having to clamor for approval or validation. Paul and his company were free to live generously and care for other people. They were gentle, like a nursing mother. And how does a nursing mother tend to their child? Well, that nursing mother gives up her rights, gives up her sleep, gives up her space bubble, right? And, and cares for that child and literally pours herself out, shapes herself in a way to meet the needs of that child. And Paul is saying we, we shaped ourselves to meet your needs as you were growing and, and needed to be fed. And we were tender. We did, we did not abuse our power. They were affectionate, desiring the good of the others. They were joyfully giving of their lives. I love this. He says, we didn't just share the good news with you. We didn't just open the book and say, there it is. He says, we shared our lives, our very selves. We gave ourselves to you. Because Paul is a good pastor. He is not just a good communicator who does a TED talk and moves on. He opens his heart. He opens his life. They, they do life together. And they experience tears and laughter together. He shared his very self with them. He wasn't an aloof guru. He was in the middle of the mess with them. And who does that sound like? Jesus didn't just send us some truth. God didn't just send us some truth from the mountaintop in an abstract form. He came into the middle of the mess with us. Paul's picking up all his cues from Jesus, guys. If you're wondering where Paul's getting all this, just take it right back to the source. You can be like, there's Jesus, and there's Jesus. And he's just imitating him all over the place. Pastoring doesn't happen in the abstract, by the way. It happens in the specifics, the details. Now, they refused to take advantage of the Thessalonians, so they worked hard not to be a financial drain or to cause anyone to wonder about their motives. This was sensitive. This is the beginning of all of these different churches. And so he wanted to remove the, the question of their motives. He could have said, you know, hey, it's okay to support ministry. And he does in other places. But he so wanted to care for them and he knew that they were under pressure and he so wanted to make sure that the motive was seen as what it was that he refused to take any of their their finances while he was there, and he was making tents all day long. He was a, a tent maker. So he worked hard, burning his candle at both ends to care for these people. He wasn't entitled. And then, like a father, Paul wanted to raise them up. He wanted to see them grow, so, so that he taught them. He, Paul, and or he, Silas, and Timothy, they taught them, they educated them, they, they instructed this fledgling new church and encouraged them. In other words, he did. He opened his life, but he opened the book, he opened scriptures. And by the way, that is a really helpful, simple understanding of how we enter into apprenticeship and help others along on this path. We open up the book, and we open up our lives, and both of them should point together to Jesus Christ, because they should both witness to who he is. All these methods come from the motivation. What was the motivation? Union with Jesus. A heart that loves God seeks to please him and therefore seeks to love others. Now look at how he, he ends this passage. 
by calling our attention again to the message. So let me reread verse 11 and then 12 here. Verse 11, for you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That is an incredibly important line. The good news is that God has called us into union with him. God has first said yes to us, that we might say yes to him, and that is done through Jesus Christ. And what has he called us into? His own kingdom, where his will is done, manifest through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's called us into his own glory. What does that mean? That we would enter into his likeness, into the likeness of Christ. Again, he's called us in union and empowered us to do what? To abide with him, be with him, and obey him, that we might then what? Reflect and radiate his glory back to him and his delight into this world for its healing. What was it that Paul and company were teaching, exhorting, and encouraging? Well, they were teaching the gospel. They were opening up the scriptures and saying, now it all points to Jesus. But then they were saying this, that we ought to walk in a manner worthy of God. That that union actually leads to a abiding with him and obeying, doing what he says, living in accordance with reality. And that this would please God. And why does it please God? Because Jesus pleases the Father, and the more we look like Christ, the more it pleases our Heavenly Father. At the heart of the practice of faithful witness is the impulse to please God and to see other people please God. Paul wants to please God over people, and in the end of this passage we see he's teaching others to please God. He wants others to please him. Now, again, what is it that pleases God? This is so important. Because uh, if you get this wrong on how one pleases God, if you get this wrong, you will torture yourself and you will hurt others. And I got this wrong for 27 years. Because I bought into the narrative. It was in my own sinful bloodstream. It was in the world around me that you do and you, you perform, right? We, uh, we walk this road of frustration, anxiety, to-do lists, and stress-inducing performances to do more, be better, try harder, stop messing up. As if we are going to be able to do this on our own strength, just gut it out, right? White knuckle it, we'll, we'll be fine. save us. We need a hero. We can't overcome our heart's stony condition. An outside source must turn the granite to flesh. And Jesus has done this for us. And here's the beautiful truth. It is only in Christ that we can please God. It is only in Jesus that we are found approved. For only Jesus has perfectly pleased God. For only Jesus has perfectly pleased God. So do you recall uh, Jesus' baptism? Goes under the water, right? He comes up, and the voice from heaven says, What? This is my beloved Son, in whom I, I am well pleased. Some time goes by, 
Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration and this incredible moment where, where heaven and earth and the, the space between them is so thin and you see him in his divine display of glory. He radiates on the Mount of Transfiguration. And the, the three disciples who were there with him, they hear this voice from heaven that says, what? This is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus said another point in, in the Gospel of John. Um, I, don't, I don't have a slide for you, but just, just listen to it. Let the words land on your heart. This is John chapter 8, verse 28 through 29. This is what he says in reference to his cross. He says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, that's Jesus, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing. By the way, this isn't just a New Testament thing. This is all of, of a weave, guys. Old Testament, New Testament. Jesus is the one that Isaiah prophesied about in Isaiah chapter 42. Here's what Isaiah wrote about this Jesus. He said, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights. Well pleased is the word. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. That's Jesus. And in Colossians chapter 1, it says, In him all the fullness of the deity of God was pleased to dwell. We could go on all day long. We don't have time. But I would be remiss if I did not say this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the great shout, the big, bold exclamation mark of the Father's approval of Jesus. He was who he said he was. He did what he came to do perfectly, righteously. As Jesus has weighed, measured, and found worthy when we have been weighed, measured, and found wanting, he has been tested and found perfect. Jesus, who is approved, it's Jesus who is approved, Jesus who pleases the Father, Jesus who is known, loved, and accepted. And it is in trusting in Jesus that we are drawn into this divine approval. That the Spirit now works within us, that we might become like Jesus. Union, abiding, obeying, imaging. So with that said, let me distill some of these thoughts, and let's just hit them one more time. Because if you're anything like me, you need, you need to hear things multiple times before it to sink in. So here are a few reflections on what we just heard. The heart of a faithful witness rests in knowing that we are approved by God because of our union with Jesus. That's where it starts. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We come to him and we rest in knowing that we, we have union with him. We are approved by God because of Christ. Next, the heart of a faithful witness is bold to speak the truth because it seeks to please God rather than people. doesn't mean we don't seek to bless people and care for people and love for people, but we are seeking God's approval first and foremost to please Him and not to chase all the opinions that are around us. The heart of a faithful
faithful witness does not work to manipulate or flatter, for our provision is in the hands of the loving God. I don't need to massage anyone's ego. I don't need to flatter anyone in order that they might provide something that I need because he's already given me everything I need and he will take care of me. He's a good dad. See the security that starts to rise up out of this? Fourth, um, the heart of a faithful witness is gentle, using God-given power for the good of others, loving them and leaving the outcomes to God. We don't have to abuse our power and force things and make things happen. He's got this. We are to be faithful and proclaim the good news and love people well. The heart of a faithful witness works hard, sacrificially giving one's life for the flourishing of others, like the, the, the mother in that metaphor that, that Paul was using, giving her life, like the dad, giving his life for the good of others, working hard. It's not easy. It's full of effort. This life born of grace is actually full of great effort. Not earning, but effort. And then, last, the heart of a faithful witness wants to see others please God by trusting in Jesus. We want to see others please God by trusting in Jesus, which is why our arms are open, the doors are open, our mouths should be open while we're preaching the gospel out there. We are to live our lives conscious of our union with Christ. And those who do can laugh and play and dance in their Father's presence like no one else. They come humbly and confident, dependent and delighting. They can come in without being rejected. They are known and accepted. And I want to show you something. As we bring this to a close, I want to show you an iconic picture that I've shown before, I know, but it's been a while. Uh, by the way, there is no political statement being put forward with this picture. There is nothing of partisan nature. I know our world wants to politicize everything. Just extract that. Help me out here. Where is this and who is in this picture? Where, where is it? White House Oval Office. Who is in this picture? JFK and John John. Yeah, JFK Jr., right? Well done. Well done. Uh, here is Jr. playing under the famous Resolute Desk. Right, that Queen Victoria gave to Rutherford B. Hayes, the symbol of great power in this world. It's something of a picture, isn't it? Confidence, boldness, humility, dependence, and delight all interwoven. Here's another one. I think I like this one even more. This time it's with Carolyn, Carolina play. You see the smile on her face? Who else but the child of the president could come into the Oval Office and dance around the desk and play under the desk? If anybody else tried this, the Secret Service would have them handled in a moment, right? Ah, the children of the president, they are approved. They are loved. They are delighted in. As are you, our king. And they can come in and they can play, and they can play, and they can play humbly and boldly dependent, seeking their father's smile. It's beautiful. Now, one more picture. This is my favorite of, of the three. Let's go to the next one. 
I don't really have to explain that to you. Um, here's John Jr. and Caroline dancing in play to their father's delight. See, even in affliction, even with his limp from being beaten, Paul somehow danced knowing he was in the delight of the Father because he was in Christ. And everything had changed. He knew he didn't have to work his way into heaven because he knew he couldn't. He knew he was adopted and brought home. And his security came out of the profound love he experienced. And some of you are dealing with radical insecurities, and you're trying to find a way to figure it out. You're trying to get stronger, smarter, and better. And I'm telling you, those things won't evaporate until they evaporate in the sunshine of the love of Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you that as somebody who wrestles with these things. And if I don't remind myself of these truths, I start to operate out of a broken sense of identity. What if we, the wayward, the rebel, the exile, the lonely, the left out, the unwanted, the not good enough, and the afflicted, could live like this, known, loved, and accepted, approved by God, dancing in the presence of our Father? What a faithful witness we would be. We would have the inner resources, the proper sense of identity, the empowering spirit, and purpose to stay steadfast no matter what affliction and pressure and resistance came our way. Knowing we are loved and delighted and by our God, this changes everything. Friends, may we live to please Him. May we live conscious daily of our union with Him, being conformed to the image of Jesus, the one in whom the Father well pleased. Heavenly Father, we can call you that because of your Son and because of your work, Lord Jesus. So we thank you for this gift of new life, this, this gift of salvation, this gift of union with you. We thank you for this new identity as, as your children. Help us to live in light of that, to love well, and to speak the truth to do the hard thing, to trust you in every situation that we enter into. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your gospel. Lord, I, I pray that this passage in your spirit moving would encourage the, the hearts of my brothers and sisters here today, those who are watching you minister to them. And for those who might be here today or listening online who started out this morning feeling far from you, never having known you, never professing you as Christ, Lord, may you have worked on their heart and changed them. And would this coming to the table be their first time, their first profession that Jesus is 